0: This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by listener support from The Secret Library podcast Patreon. You can check it out and become a supporter at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode 130 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Mary Robinette Cole, and she is the author of Ghost Talkers, the Glamorous History Series, and the Lady Astronaut Duology. She is a cast member of the award-winning podcast Writing Excuses and also a three-time Hugo Award winner. Her short fiction appears in Uncanny, Tor.com, and Asimov's. Mary Robinette, a professional puppeteer, lives in Chicago. So... Obviously, when I was presented with the phrase lady astronauts, as well as professional puppeteer, I knew I had to have Mary Robinette on the show immediately. In addition to the fact that she is also a voice actor who has done um, audiobook narration. So I was just on the hunt and I was not disappointed. Not only does she have an incredible voice, so enjoy listening to that for this episode, she also has incredible insight and As we discussed with Ada Palmer a few episodes ago, I am really fascinated with the ways in which science fiction is taking on historical exploration. And in Mary Robinette's Lady Astronaut series, she turns towards the past and looks at how an incident in the 1950s might have changed the course of science and women's role, particularly in the space program. I could not put this book down. I know you won't be able to put it down. And I know you're going to snatch it up immediately after you hear about her process in writing it. In addition, I was really eager to have her on because she has proven to me through the conversation you'll listen to that you don't need to be an expert in every aspect of what your book is about. If you have a story that's not leaving you alone, but you're thinking to yourself things like, oh, I could never write science fiction. I don't know enough about science or some other version of that. Let this episode make you very confident and eager with lots of techniques she shares to move forward and write that story anyway. So here we go with Mary Robinette Cole. Hi, Mary Robinette. Thank you so much for coming on. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I have, there are so many things that we could talk about. So I'm going to attempt to talk about all of them, which is probably a mistake. But (laughs) if we don't get it all done, then you'll just have to come back because I have a feeling you're going to write more books. Um, Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe it seems that way. But what what gives you that impression? I don't know. It might be what I'm doing this morning. (laughs) I know. Exactly. So I wanted to start with one of the things that made me just so eager to talk to you, besides the fact that your books are totally fascinating, is that you do three that I know of, very different things. So you write books, and Mm -hmm. have been writing books since 2010, or publishing them since 2010. Mm -hmm. And you also have a multi-decade career in puppetry. And you also do voiceover, including for our mutual connection, Cory Doctorow, among others. So can you say a little bit about how this unfolded? Because... I am very sympathetic and, and excited to hear about these sorts of careers because I am similar. And people say, well, how do these things all go together? And my answer is usually because I say so. Um, but I'm interested it. in your answer. <laughs> There's a
1: certain degree of where that's true. Uh, so for me, I have uh, one career that manifests in three different income streams, which is that I'm a storyteller and a freelancer. So I was an art major in college with a minor in theater and speech. I've always been that that kid who wanted to do everything. And my challenge was figuring out how to do the gigs I wanted to do while being able to turn down the ones I didn't want to do. So like writing and puppetry, uh, the, these are, for me, very much just storytelling things. Um, it's about... Seeing the world, trying to imagine how things connect, stuff like that. Uh, the fact that one of them, my tool is prose, and the other, my tool is an inanimate object. Those, that to me doesn't make much of a difference. Um, it, it is a different mechanical technique, but my goal is the same in both cases. It's to bluntly manipulate an audience. And I feel like the same is very much true for the audiobooks. Uh with the audiobooks, I'm taking the skill set that I have from the puppetry, which is voices and things like that, moving it into audio form. I, I sometimes joke that audiobooks are like puppetry without the pain. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then again, I'm doing it in an effort to connect with and manipulate an audience. Uh, I'm doing it with someone else's words, but most of the time when I'm performing as a puppeteer, I'm also working with someone else's words. But it's always about that audience relationship.
0: Amazing. So, again, in terms of connecting with an audience, I'm thinking about your most recent book, The Faded Sky, which is a sequel to The Calculating Stars, and how you have worked with kind of... Sci-fi, yet history, yet both, kind of as a genre. Um, I feel like I don't want to say alternative history anymore, given how loaded the, the terminology seems to me. But <laughs> taking history and reinterpreting what might have happened under di- different circumstances. And I'm interested in how you got into that form of storytelling. So
1: I started with with novels. Um, I say I started. Let me... Let me back that up a little bit. Uh, The first novel that I published was definitely not the first novel I wrote. It's like novel four. Uh, But the first novel that I published was alternate history, technically speaking. I call it historical fantasy, which is I took a piece of history, added magic to it. So it's Jane Austen with magic. So what I was doing with the Calculating Stars and Faded Sky for me is, is kind of the same thing. Um, It's just that my magic system happens to be hard science this time. And the reason that I do that, the reason I like playing with history is that it gives us this, uh, this era that we're often at least passingly familiar with. And, and then does the thing that science fiction does best, which is to say, but what if, what if things had gone down differently you know, in this case, I slam a giant meteor into the earth. But really, the question is, what would happen? What would the world look like if we were getting women into the space program sooner? And and what would the world have needed to look like in order to do that? And I don't honestly think that we needed to slam a meteor into the earth, uh, but it was the most expedient way to do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so for me, there's a, a lot of that, that what if question. The other thing is that Science fiction and fantasy always take the kind of known world and tip it to the side. I I think, or at least the stuff I'm most interested in, uh, takes the known world, tips it to the side so you can see the interconnecting tissue. And it gives you a way to, to think about it in different ways without all of the emotional baggage that comes. What I find is that when I am working with history in addition to the science fiction layer, that people will very much have the... The more things change, the more they remain the same. that that there is a line of recognition to different societal issues that people draw from the books on their own. So I don't have to say, it's like this. people, oh, I don't have to go polemic on it. I can just say, "Here's this thing." and then people will suddenly start going, oh, but it's it's still like that. Maybe in in it's manifesting slightly differently, but it there's so many things that really haven't changed at all,
0: right? I was because in reading, um, in reading the Calculating Stars, I, I felt sort of like an idiot at first because I knew it was. Know that there was a fantasy element and that there was fantasy history, but it reads so much like a memoir Hmm. that I said, did I not know about this meteor? (laughs) Until it was clear (laughs) like the level of damage that had happened. I was like, Oh, okay, okay, we're that whole the whole thing, the whole thing is is fantasy. I thought that maybe there was a meteor, but it wasn't quite so bad. And I was like, Oh no, no, got it. But one of the things that I think is so impressive about the book is how believable it is. And it you can kind of sit yourself in it. And I think having had experiences like 9-11 is the one that springs to mind where mm. there's a big moment that changes everything for many people and people know where they were. And that's one that involves sort of a violent impact. But there is this sense of, yes, that you can take the history and then unpeel it a little bit and see what's happening and I'm wondering which came first for you, the thought, OK, what about a meteor or what about the 50s? Or did they happen simultaneously?
1: Um, so, <laughs> so here's the thing about the Lady Astronaut universe. Um, it actually started with a short story uh, that uh, is called We Interrupt This Broadcast, which no one in the lady. I need to stress this. No one in the lady astronaut universe knows the events of this story, nor will they ever. They will always think that the meteor was an act of God, but it was not. Um, it was actually aimed. And uh, really, yeah. Um, now I am doing so much hand waving to make that happen because I I could get away with that in a short story, but where it where it started was actually. Uh, With the idea, um, I was doing a short story writing contest that some friends and I used to do, uh, Liberty Hall writers, and we would do a weekly flash fiction thing where you'd get a writing prompt and then you would have, um, you would have 90, 90 minutes to write it. Oh, wow. It was, and it was a lot of fun. And then once a year we would do something that, that we called the, um, see, was it the, was uh, something idle, Liberty Hall idle, but basically where you would just write the opening and if people liked it, you would move on to the next round. So the writing prompt for this one was, um, I think the three things that I had to work with were consumption and Valentine's day. And there was, I think there was one other that can't remember exactly what made me go there, but the reason it is uh, set in 1952 was because I wanted to do something with punch cards and uh, and a Y2K problem centered around leap day. Interesting. So 1952 is a leap year, right? And, uh, and there was a computer program that nearly like the meteor, nearly didn't happen because the, the main character in that story almost forgot to account for leap day in his calculations. Um, so that honestly is, is where it started. The reason that I hung out in the universe after having kind of invented it, I guess, is because... I, the idea of what we were able to do as a society in an era of punch cards uh, and before we had mechanical computers really being up and reliable, we were able to do some amazing, amazing things. So that's that's sort of the genesis of the universe. But the reason that I stuck around is because um Because I I love thinking about what would have happened if we had continued to throw money at the Apollo program, at the space program, at the rate that we were doing during the initial space race. You know, that we were sending people to the moon when we had, you know, my cell phone has more computing power than the entire planet did at that time. It's amazing. Yeah. and, And we were able to do these things. And then the more I read about the era and realized um, how much of it was driven by women. Uh, and, and I was writing this before hidden figures came out. So when hidden figures came out, I was like, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Someone where, where were you, uh, when I needed this, when I, when it was hard to find this information and now it's, it's thankfully much, much easier to find it. But like JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, There's a great book called uh, Rise of the Rocket Girls, which is about the women at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they had a policy to not hire men for the computing department.
0: Interesting.
1: Right? Yeah. They thought that it disrupted the work ethic and dynamic.
0: This is the thing, another thing that I love, like the terminology and the period data and so much of it. I mean, obviously all of that aspect is true and then just applied to it, an unusual situation. But I love the fact that the women refer to themselves as computers mm-hmm. because I'm like, Oh, obviously it's someone that computes. Yeah. But at first I was like, why are they talking about computers? It's only the fifties. I was like, Oh, it's the people. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I fought that one um, trying to, to get that because I knew I know what happens to people's brains when you say computer. Now you have a very specific concrete image in your head. But I'm like, no, I, I want you to understand why we have that. And, and also, this is, I think, a really interesting thing. Um, the, the legacy of those of those computers uh, sticks around in the fact that most of the computers in the United States have female voices, Yes. And, and what's really super interesting about that to me, and, and this is one of those things where it's definitely a correlation. I cannot prove any of this. But there's an interesting thing, which is, you know, as I said, JPL had this policy. They did not hire men for the computing department. So what that means is that for a launch, you've got this room full of men. And then someone will say, Computer. Uh, you know, computer, what's what's the trajectory? And this lone female voice would come out and say, "The trajectory is," and then recite a string of numbers that she had just computed. So imagine then being in California working on Star Trek and needing to go get some background. So you would go to JPL. And I don't know that I have no proof. I've never looked into it honestly. But anyone who is interested in space would have been experiencing this sound of this lone female voice in a room full of men. So we know that Siri and a lot of the other Alexa, that those developers were influenced by the computer on Star Trek. So there's this back and forth there. Now, where it gets, I think, interesting is that in Germany, for the most part, the computer voices of modern computers are men, are male. When you look back at the history of their space program their computers were all men so you did not have that lone female voice and interesting and i'm sure that i mean i know that there's a ton of other contributing factors that go into a decision like that but but just that little bit of correlation i find really interesting
0: yeah how that could influence you know a device or what people would expect or from alexa or siri or other technology that that happens later yeah and I think there is this line when you think about something like Star Trek or shows that I watched you know as a kid and later is that there's this back and forth between what you feel like could be possible and we all talk about flying cars and and things like that and and then wanting to see that become real but then there's this idea of would they ever have become real these things that have if they hadn't first been imagined in science fiction
1: Exactly. And I think that's one of the the values of science fiction is that we do get to do these thought experiments. I was at a, uh, every now and then I get pulled in to be, you know, a futurist at a thing, mm. which is what they call me when they don't want to say that we've brought in a science fiction writer. <laughs> and so it's like this technology industry thing. And they're they're talking about, you know, what can this museum do to uh, to, that, that no one else is doing, um, to help shape the future. And they're like, well, you know, we can, we can sit down and imagine things like, you know, what will the world look like when, when robots take over all of our jobs? And I'm like, um, let me give you this reading list of novels that have already done that thought experiment. Or, you know, if we, if we try to colonize another planet and, and the ships can't go fast enough, people will have to be on it for, for more than one generation. What, what would we call that? What would it look like? I'm like, it's called a generation ship. Um, <laughs> let me give you this list of reading. Here's a stack of novels. It's like, these are, not, these are not things that no one has thought about. What are the ethics of artificial intelligence? No one is thinking about that. I'm like, allow me to introduce you to the work of, oh, I don't know, Isaac Asimov, uh, you know, and, and everyone after him. It's, these are, this is what we do, this is, this is our fun time.
0: Exactly. So I am interested and, you know, I'm putting pressure on you to answer this question, but what do you think it is? Because this happens all the time. And I think about when I read science fiction, it does make me think about things I've never thought about before. And it makes me consider questions, which I think is incredibly important and a really valuable use of the power of fiction. And yet there is this kind of In many areas like literature is really valuable, but science fiction is somehow set aside as genre and not as serious. Yet here are these situations where the exact questions that it's considering are being actively thought about by people not knowing that there's a whole body of work available for them to follow. What do you think is going on there? I
1: think that it's a couple of different things. But the the biggest thing is um, actually what happens to people when they go to college. Mm. So so up to that point, you've been reading, uh, you know, what they used to call juveniles, uh, which are the the young adults of the day of today. Um, So you were reading the juveniles uh, and everything was kind of mixed and shelved together. And then you go to college, and you have no time to read at all. Uh, And this happens to everybody, no matter what they start off in life reading. You go to college, and the only thing you really have time for is reading your coursework and doing homework and and partying with friends, potentially, depending on you. You come out of college, and you're like, oh, I finally have time to read again. And you reach for something that you used to enjoy reading. And you are now no longer the right age for that. But you don't know, because everything was shelved together— you don't necessarily know that, oh, you need to go to the science fiction section. Um, or, or you pick it up and you go, oh, I used to like that, but I don't anymore. And you don't even go looking. It's like, well, I used to like it. I guess I just, I guess I only enjoyed it because I was young, which is true, but it's not, you're mistaking. But what people do, I think, is that they mistake the set dressing for the structure. And what they are no longer suited for anymore is the structure of those books. But the set dressing is probably still appealing.
0: Yes, I think so. And then they miss out. Or you see people who are like, I'm so exhausted by reading. Um, I'm just going to give up on the whole thing. Or they end up reading other things and they get sucked into their phones and magazines and that's the end of it.
1: Right, right. And, you know, Lord knows I read on my phone uh, and, and I read magazines, but I'm reading short fiction magazines um, most of the time.
0: Yeah. So what do you think we need to do about this? I feel like we need to do something about this. We're missing out on potential um, improvements to society and development just because people think, oh, it's amazing to me, though, that people don't know that there's a next level of science fiction, just like there is, you know, you wouldn't read the same literary novels that you read as a kid as an adult, you know, that there's another section. So how is that? Do we need to change the shelving methods in bookstores maybe? Well, I think it's
1: a lot of it also has to do. So I said there were a couple of components. So I think that, that, that first thing is the, is one component. And the other is, is honestly, you know, it's, it's prejudice and, um, there's a lot of gatekeepers who are saying, well, this is, you know, you should, you want something serious. And, and it may also be the language that people use when they go in. It's like, I want something more serious than what I used to read. Um, and I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I have certainly seen that, but the, the big thing I, I would say in terms of that we can do as individuals um, is to not be shy about the things that we enjoy Uh, to not be ashamed of them. I mean, how many times have you or someone that you know, when someone says, what do you read, kind of apologized in the way you've said it? It's like, well, I read Mm. science fiction and that's, that's telling someone that it's something that you shouldn't be happy about, you know, that, that you should, that, that there is some residual shame that you carry with it, that you're expecting them to make fun of you um, and so what I find is, and this is actually a lesson I learned from puppetry is I, you know, I used to say, uh, just say, well, I'm a puppeteer when people asked me or, you know, I'm a puppeteer. Uh, mm. and what I learned was that if I just started saying very matter of factly, I'm a professional puppeteer that I stopped getting the responses that I used to get, which was, but what do you really do? And Oh, oh no. Oh, I used to love puppets when I was a kid or you must really like children. Um, and I'm like, Oh, actually the last thing that I made had a penis that worked. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, yeah. It, it, the things you make as a puppeteer is kind of fascinating sometimes. Um, and absolutely. Uh, so it, it, so I've, I find that when I stop apologizing, pre-apologizing for the fact that I read science fiction and fantasy, that I wind up having a very different conversation with people. Because I used to do this myself. I would say, I read fantasy. Um, And that if I say, well, I read fantasy and science fiction, that what they're forced to do then is to treat me as if I'm serious, which I am. And if they reply with, Um, Oh, I used to love that when I was a kid. Um, Then I can say that gives me the opening to say, well, what do you read now? And if you, you know, and they'll rattle something off and then I can say, well, you might, you might give this book a try because I think it deals with some of the same themes that you're interested in uh, and also delves into. and. And they will often, sometimes they'll jot it down. I have no idea how often they actually pick it up and read it. But I have I have managed to get some people into the gateway. Um, and you'll see this as well. Like someone who starts watching Game of Thrones um, and then suddenly realizes that they're books and then they finish reading those and the next book is not out yet. And so they're, they're like, well, what do I read that's like this? And then... Then the gatekeepers, the the booksellers, can direct them to things that are like that. And I think, you know, booksellers want to do that. They want to direct people to books that they're going to enjoy. But a lot of it depends on the information that the person coming into the store wants. The same with librarians.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think having worked in a bookstore myself, you'll you'll have a lot of preconceptions about what they think they should like versus what they actually like. And depending on what kind of store it is, they're going to feel like they want to put themselves in, I don't know, something that seems very highbrow, like literary anthology or something, rather than, you know, I really just want to read some crime novels. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, you know, there's, there's the difference
1: between, for me, structure and set dressing. And and I realize that every time I say set dressing about science fiction and fantasy, that someone out there is going, it's more than that. And it's true that there is, there is something larger in a genre about a conversation with itself. But, but what I mean is that, you know, when you're talking about science fiction, there's so many different types of science fiction. You know, there's, there's science fiction thrillers, there's science fiction romances, uh, there's science fiction space operas. there's you know science fiction noir, there's all of these murder mysteries, all of these different things. So there's a there's a plot structure. and then there's also the the setting, the the place that we are, the the mood and an experience that you're going to have while you're reading the book that that is can be informed by the the structure. But is also very much about the the set and the characters that inhabit it and the the feel of the place. and you know and and the things that you're allowed to to do within that. So like when I'm doing theater, I can perform the same basic show, and it'll have very different feel depending for the audience, depending on whether I'm in you know a tiny little, black box doing, uh, doing something that's modern dress on a bare stage versus something where I'm, you know, doing full immersion, full costumes. It feels like we're in the town of Hamlin, and, and the audience will have a different experience of that. Even if, even if I took exactly the same script sometimes.
0: Absolutely. I want to ask a question about, as you say, set dressing or world building or whatever we want to say about it. Because in in particular, in your series, when you started, obviously, with the short story that then became The Calculating Stars and now into your most recent book... I'm I'm thinking about people listening who may be interested and have and a desire to write science fiction, but may worry. Well, I don't know enough science, and I'm wondering oh. how much you knew <laughs> about space and all of that. But when you first wrote the short story and what your research and history process was like, just to sort of assuage any fears that people may have about like I think I want to write in this world, but I don't know enough. Uh, so, um, so there's a big difference
1: between like I research for uh, for short stories, but really cursory. So a short story reader is is just looking for a swift emotional punch to the gut, and they don't scratch the surface too much because they know you have to leave stuff out. Novel readers read for immersion, and if you leave stuff out, they assume it's because you didn't think about it. Um, so for novels, I have to do much more in-depth research, but um, the amount that I actually know about spaceflight is very small. What I did for these books is, uh, I, I, have like a very narrow targeted area of knowledge. Um, so I kind of do a little bit of cursory reading, uh, come up with my plot and my outline. And then I do more targeted reading that helps me refine exactly what's going to happen. Um, and so, and then and then the then I have spot research that I do as I go through, where I, I hit something and I realize that I don't know the answer to it, and so I'll just put it in brackets and then move on. For these books, uh, th- I I got in I started it and I was realized that the amount of science that I was going to need to know in order to write them was just going to be prohibitive. Um, mm not not in terms of like I could have learned it, sure, but um, it was gonna slow me down and uh and and also because I had cast my main character as a mathematician and physicist and pilot, uh, who's also kind of a genius who's kind of a genius, and I'm like, I don't have areas of knowledge in any of those, like i am i'm like I have been told, although I've never gone in for the actual testing, but I've been told by, by a, um, uh, learning, uh, learning disabilities, uh, assessor that I very likely have dyscalculia, uh, cause I like add instead of subtract and, uh, flip numbers all the time. I need to go in. Oh, I don't need to go in. I'm almost 50. It's fine. This is what computer computers and calculators are for. Anyway, point being, I have like none of her skill sets. right? The the thing that we have in common is that we're Jewish, not Jewish. She's Jewish. I'm not, we're Southern. We're Southern and we're women. And that's it. That's like, that's what we have in common. And that we're in a loving, committed relationship other than Southern women with a, with a great husband. Yeah, pretty much nothing. Um, so what I did for these was I hired a science consultant, um, and you like in, in other books, I've tapped someone to be, uh, an expert knowledge person and haven't hired them. I've just been like, let me, let me buy you coffee. Let me give you an honorarium for this one thing. Uh, here's a friend, I'll cook you a meal. Um, for this book, I was like, I need someone who is with me all the way through. And that, that's Stephen Grenade. And he was amazing. Um, And then I also got a couple of other people who were, uh, had even more specific areas of expertise. So I had a couple of astronauts reading. Um, I had uh, an astronomer who... Would would help, and and so for those people, I would just send them the sections that I had questions about. Stephen read the entire thing. Uh, Chell Lindgren, astronaut, also read all of Calculating Stars. Uh, Katie Coleman stepped in to give me specific feedback on on sections. Uh, she's a shuttle era astronaut, uh, and Chell is a, a an active duty astronaut. And so, what I would do with them, you know, I said that that I would do spot research where I would put things in brackets. What I would often do is have things like, you know, I, I know the emotional arc of the scene. And I also know that what I need is for them to be demonstrating competence at something. Then they're flying a, a spaceship. And so I would say things like, and then the captain said, jargon, as he jargoned the jargon. <laughs> and I would send it to Katie and Chell and Steven and say, can you just play Mad Libs? Amazing. And so then they would send it back uh, and, and, and it was, it was fantastic. Uh, So parts of this book technically are written by astronauts. Um, That is uh, so cool. So if
0: I can slow this process down a little bit, Mm -hmm. because I can hear the little brains exploding as they're listening to this. How did you find a science consultant? How did that happen? How did you approach him? What would someone do if they were interested in that?
1: Okay. So there's, there's a difference in the way I go about it now at this stage in my career
0: versus Mm -hmm.
1: when I was early career, uh, because at this stage in my career, what I can do is go onto Twitter and say, Hey, I'm looking for a science consultant. Uh, I'm looking for someone who has this information about these things. Um, and a number of people got in touch with me and Stephen was the one I hired.
0: Um, so this is what you can look forward to once you've published right. the books.
1: Right. I think I, I say I went on Twitter. I, I wrote it on a blog post and then tweeted. Um, that's something I can do now. Uh, I have, for those people who are listening to this and have never heard of me, I have, um, like 30,000 followers on Twitter. So I, Plus it's the
0: Won the Hugo, you've got, yeah, you've got so, some chops.
1: Right. So, and so there's people out there, uh, that, that are willing to, that, but it's mostly about having, having a wide net that I can cast now. Um, this is also how I met Katie. I was like, I need to just, I just wanted to be able to sit down and ask an astronaut a couple of questions and then, uh, put a, a tweet out and someone responded, uh, Stacey Berg, who's a fantastic science fiction writer. Um, and she's like, I'm friends with Katie Coleman and I see that you're going to be in Houston on your book tour. And she's going to be in town as well. Do you want to meet? And I'm like, yes. Um, And then Katie has been fantastic and very supportive since. Uh, But so that's how I do that now. Right. The way I handled this before I had the wide net that I could cast is that I would, when I was doing my research, um, I would look for like, okay, here's a person who has written several articles about the thing, um, or in the back of this bibliography, here's a person who's written a book about this specific thing. And so I would I would just send them a message um, like we were. And this was back in, in my puppet theater days. Uh, we were working on a show about Mary Anning, who was uh, the first widely regarded as the first professional fossilist um, uh and, you know, like she's, she was a 12 year old girl when she discovered the first fully associated skeleton of an ichthyosaur. And this one name kept coming up when I was reading, which was Hugh Torrens, Dr. Hugh Torrens. And so I sent him an email and I said, we're working on this. Uh, we're coming to to London and it would be lovely if you could, uh, if we could, uh, could meet you. And, and, um, and, We offered him a very small honorarium and he was, I think it was like $150 to sit down and and talk with us. And what he did was then he not only sat down and talked with us, but he then introduced us to people. Mm. Um, And that's been one of the things uh, that I've learned uh, is that one of the values of having a a science consultant or, or someone else is that if they don't know the answer, they know people who do. Um, I, I also in these books, because as I I mentioned, I'm I'm not Jewish. Um, I worked with, uh, Chani Beckman and she, uh, she was fantastic. Um, everything that's right in the book is her, everything that is wrong is me. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but when I would ask questions, if she didn't know the answer, she would, she would go check with someone. Or if, if it was something where she's like, "Mm, there's a couple of different ways that People approach this particular thing. Um, let me let me talk with some friends, and then she would come back and kind of give me a, a a condensed like here's a couple of different options. So so the the thing is that you know these people because they have uh, areas of expertise or areas areas of knowledge also have networks um, of knowledge as well. So that's that's basically how I I used to to do that was I would. I would reach out to, you know, I would just, I would send a, a cold email and I've, you know, I've sent them and gotten people back who replied, no, I don't have time to do that. And that's, that's fair. I just move on to another person. It took me a couple of time tries to, to find an astronomer. Right. Um, uh, and, and honestly, um, I met her in person and uh, at a conference and it came up.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I think this is crucial because a lot of times there are these tropes about writing that come up, like write what you know. Um, And it's rather difficult to write what you know when you're writing about a hypothetical alternative way that history could have gone because nobody knows how that could have gone. So... I think it's important for people to feel brave, and if they have an idea that's exciting to them, to not be deterred by the fact that you may need to ask questions or you may need to ask for help. In some ways, I think this is the benefit of writing. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I, I actually want to talk a little bit about write what you know because I Please. think it's—I it, think it is a very misunderstood uh, trope, or, or not trope, aphorism. I think it's really misunderstood because, um, and I, I unfortunately cannot remember the entire quote, but it's it's part of a larger thing. Um, I think it was Hemingway said, but the the, what, it, what he was saying was um, that there are stories in your life that feel normal to you because that is the way you experience life. And they are not normal to other people. They are strange and interesting and worth delving into. And so when he was saying, you know, write what you know, he was saying, you, you don't ignore your own lived experience, Like use that. That's, that's honestly part of why Elma is Southern. It's because I'm Southern, I'm writing what I know. Um, The other thing about it is that you're right. There's a ton of stuff that we can't know. So I think that the other way to look at that, that write what you know is to extrapolate from what you know. Like I will never get to go into the neutral buoyancy labs pool. Like that's never going to happen. But I can go into water. I can, I can walk into a pool area and think about the smells and the sounds. Um, I can go and watch, uh, and and extrapolate from that. I can watch them hanging sideways in the in the spacesuits, and and it is like watching them work in the spacesuits in the neutral buoyancy lab. Looks so much that the physical physicality of that looks so much like some of the things that I did when I was doing puppetry with with giant body suits where you have pieces of fiberglass digging into you, which is something that the astronauts have to deal with inside the the hard upper torso of the of the uh, of the EMU, the external mobility unit. Um mm. I've gotten like, I'm so good with the acronyms now. Um, When I I watched, uh, when I watched the, I I got to watch a full um, simulated spacewalk, a dev run, development run. And when they got out of the spacesuits, so they're in the pool for like six hours and the way they flexed their hands, I'm like, that is exactly the way I flex my hands when I've been working a puppet mechanism that's too stiff. Like, and and I know that that the gloves because they're pressurized. They they always talk about it feels like you're pressing against heavy springs to close your hand. I'm like I know that feeling. I know exactly that feeling. I will never be able to get into an EMU, but I know that feeling, and I can I can write that. Amazing. So I think that's I think that's a lot of what write what you know comes from it's like don't ignore your own experience and you can extrapolate from that when you are writing things that are outside your experience
0: i think that makes perfect sense and i think that it's it is it's important to think that it doesn't have to be the exact same circumstances you can pull pieces of it it's almost mm-hmm. like a collage you take the yeah. parts that are familiar and then you apply it in circumstances where it is similar
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's what writing is. It's it's a big collage of thoughts and experiences that we string together into a narrative.
0: Yes, it is. Amazing. I think this is something that's really important to remember is that when you write fiction, that's all you're doing. You're, mm-hmm. you're taking experience and with a what if scenario, and then you're making something from that.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a thing I talk about with puppetry, which is another way it, it, it comes over into the writing, that my job as a puppeteer is to, to watch body language, the movements that people do naturally, break them apart into their semantic components, reconstruct that with an inanimate object into a human readable form. And that's what I'm doing as a writer I am watching the world and I'm breaking it apart into its semantic components and reassembling that in text in a way that is human readable. Not just these are words on a page, but that that has an emotional connection. And that's it's it's all it's all about observation and taking taking the pieces, taking the components that you need in order to have that connection to the audience, in order to for them to to feel and smell and breathe and live that experience.
0: Yes, I think so. And it does come across in your books. It's a completely kind of fantastical situation that you're dealing with. And yet there are all of these moments that are so recognizable, like the desire, you know, having been not taken seriously by a male boss as a woman in a situation, you know, these moments that you... That readers can recognize. And there are moments for everybody. It's not just women. But I think that I've particularly connected with those moments. And I think that being able to draw from those experiences and to trust that if you have an idea for a book that seems big or seems like, oh, wow, how am I going to pull this off, that it is possible to break it down into something smaller and to work with the smaller pieces and move forward that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Connie Willis said something uh, once, which I, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing, because we were, you know, it's th- sorry. This is the the name drop moment because Connie Willis and I were just <laughs> hanging out talking at a party as cool. if I haven't been hasn't been name dropping astronauts all day. Um, but she, what she said was um, that that she thought that one of the big differences between literary fiction and science fiction and fantasy is that in literary f- fiction you had an absolutely normal, ordinary situation and in order for the story to move forward you had to have an extraordinary reaction to it so you know uh, someone finds out that her her husband is cheating on her so she goes to the PTA meeting and stands on a table and shouts and rails at at the at the trollop um, that's a huge extraordinary reaction normally someone has a tearful confrontation and then and then divorce there's there's not going to the PTA at the big meeting and you know that that that's not that's an extraordinary larger than life reaction whereas with science fiction and fantasy what we have is we have extraordinary larger than life situations which then allows our characters to have completely ordinary reactions while the story moves forward so that in many ways when we are look at reading science fiction and fantasy, we often will wind up having more emotional truth because this is actually how you would react. It's like, and, you know, there's aliens coming from the sky, but this is how you react when, as you say, you know, you're being overlooked by your boss. I don't have to have Elma have an extraordinary or larger than life reaction because I have, I have those already happening around her. And those can push the story while I can allow her to, to just be a person.
0: Yes. I think this is true because there is so much incredible character development that can happen in science fiction, and I see it all the time. So it's very interesting to hear that parallel, and I think it's really important.
1: Yeah, I was t- on a panel, and a, a male panelist said that he thought that science fiction did not do emotion well and that it was only recently that we were having anyone write books that were emotionally compelling. And I went off on this ginormous <laughs> book list of people and I, and I said, I'm like, no, people have been writing emotionally compelling uh, books all along, you just weren't reading the books written by women. Nice. And, um, and then I and the other panelists started. He's like, well, who? Tell me who. And so we just started doing all of these women from the 60s and 70s, you know, that, that were hugely influential. You know, Andre Norton, Anne McCaffrey, Ursula Le Guin, Octavia Butler. It's like these women were writing amazing books that he just had forgotten about.
0: Oops. Well, hopefully he went back and read them afterwards. Yeah, Yeah, I I would hope so. So I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about all of this. And I hope that people listening who have thought about science fiction or read it when they were younger and thought, oh, I really love reading it now too, but I don't know if I could ever handle writing it, that maybe they're inspired to give it a try, even just for a short story and, and to see how that goes. Because I think there's a lot that we need to consider about what our future is gonna look like. And these kinds of thought thought experiments, as you call them, are essential at the moment. So more of us should be writing them. Yes, plus it's fun. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonohue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.